politician that says peace lies. I like that. I like that. Oh my gosh. That's I'll, all of them. I'll have to remember that. Every smiling politician that says peace lies. Lies. All wow. Churches. Okay, the seven churches of Revelation. Okay, did Sergio just respond? I think we are... Uh, he didn't, but okay. Anyway, I think we're live. It says we're live, at least on that. So hopefully that'll be okay. And let me get these things out of here. And we're going to be in, he says, live. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you, thank you. Um, let's see here. A couple prayer requests. Um, Will Groban, some of uh, you online watching right now. I don't, does anybody here? You know Will Groban, don't you? Okay, Will Groban is uh, applying for a possible pastor position out in uh Kansas. That's a big change from, from uh, St. Pete, Florida. But anyway, uh, Will Groban is looking for prayer for uh, you know the right direction. He doesn't want to take it if it's not the right fit, and he wouldn't want to be the wrong fit for them as well. Uh, Jan and Mike. Mike is the son. Jan has been in the hospital, and she's had many setbacks this past week. And uh, he's been a little frustrated, but he got a little bit better of a report for his mom. Uh, the last one I read, he sent out a couple reports a day. But we want to continue to keep them in prayer until she gets out of the hospital and can do PT at home. And uh, uh, just, you know, it's just depressing. I know it is. Um, and we have Mike here visiting from South Carolina. He came down for just two days, drove down. He was here last year just for his birthday, and then he went back home uh, on a Sunday. But now he, uh, he drove down here just for the Bible class and to spend a day with me. And so we want to pray for safe travels for Mike back to South Carolina tomorrow morning. Because uh, it's an eight-hour drive, and he's like me. He's not a, a great driver when it comes to long distances. Some people don't mind it. I'm, I, you get me 15 minutes more in the, uh, more than 15 minutes in the uh, wheel, and I don't like it. I don't like driving past, like, Bradenton. That's it. I'm just not a good driver. So we'll keep those in prayer, and we'll read this day in Christian history, and then we will have a prayer, and then we'll get started. Today is the 20th, 1717 today. Uh, oh, yeah, let's read a psalm first. I, well, because Jim's not here, I'm a little offbeat, but we'll read Psalm 119, verse 81. Thank you, uh, Burke. Let's see here, Psalm 119, verse 81 is where we're going to be at. And it's the letter Kaf, which means like the palm of a hand, open palm of a hand. That part is the Kaf. Okay, let's see here. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, When will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in smoke. Yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me! They also made an end of me on the earth. But I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. That's Psalm 119.81. And let's see here. Today is September 17th. And it's uh, my friend Shella's birthday today. If she's watching, happy birthday, Shella. Let's see here. September 17th. What does the Bible mean when it says that God is a jealous God? On September 17th, 592 B.C., the prophet Ezekiel was sitting in his home in southern Babylonia with the elders of Judah. It had been five years since Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem for the second time and taken the Jews into exile. Suddenly, Ezekiel had a vision in which the Spirit took him to the temple in Jerusalem. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, Ezekiel 8, 
There God appeared to Ezekiel and showed him the idolatry was being practiced in the temple. An idol had been erected at the entrance to the altar. Seventy elders of Judah were worshiping engraved animals in the dark, thinking that God would not see them. Women were weeping at the temple gate for the heathen god Tammuz. Twenty-five men with their backs to the altar were worshiping the sun. God asked Ezekiel, Is it nothing to the people of Judah that they commit these terrible sins, leading the whole nation into violence, thumbing their noses at me and rousing my fury against them? Therefore, I will deal with them in fury. I will neither, <coughs> excuse me, pity nor spare them. And though they scream for mercy, I will not listen. God commanded, bring on the men appointed to punish the city. Six men appeared, each carrying a battle club. With them was a seventh man with a writing kit. To this man, God said, walk through the streets of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all those who weep and sigh because of the sins they see around them. The mark, anybody know what the mark is that they put on the head? The letter Tav, the Hebrew letter Tav, which means a cross. The cross is what saves Old Testament and New. Anyway, um, it's the uh, foreheads on all those who weep and sigh because of the sins that they see around them. To the other six, God said, follow him through the city and kill everyone whose forehead is not marked. The seven then carried out their respective orders. The glory of God rose up and went to the entrance of the temple and to, then to the eastern gate. Ezekiel was taken to the eastern gate where God told him the meaning of the vision. Speaking to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he said, I will drive you out of Jerusalem and hand you over to foreigners who will carry out my judgments against you. You will be slaughtered all the way to the borders of Israel. Ezekiel fell face down in the dust and cried out, O sovereign Lord, are you going to kill everyone in Israel? The Lord answered, Give the exiles this message from the sovereign Lord. Although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you are scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel once again. And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their hearts of stone and give them tender hearts instead, so they will obey my laws and regulations. Then they will truly be my people, and I will be their God. <clears throat> but as for those who long for idols, I will repay them fully for their sins. Then the Spirit of the Lord left Jerusalem, and Ezekiel was taken back in the Spirit to Babylonia, where he told his fellow exiles everything he had seen and heard in his vision. The prophet Malachi said that God's presence would not return to the temple until it did so in the person of Jesus. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come into his temple. That's Malachi 3.1. God is a jealous God who will not share his worship with rivals. Ezekiel's vision was fulfilled six years later when God sent the Babylonian armies under, under Nebuchadnezzar to comp, conquer Jerusalem a third and final time destroying the temple, killing thousands of Jews, and taking the remainder captive to Babylonia. And they ask, what can we learn from this for our own lives? What modern gods are competing for the allegiance of God's people today? How about your allegiance? And they cite Exodus 20, verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not share your affection with any other God. I do not leave unpunished the sins of those who hate me. So there you go. They, uh, uh, the thing about Ezekiel chapter 5, and we might as well read that really quickly, just so you know what I, is on my mind. <clears throat> I'll take you to that passage. And while I do, I just realized Tom Alley, I've been worrying he's not here. 
he went up to Ohio. I just realized that right now because I'm sitting here stewing. Where is Tom? I hope he's all right. He never misses anything. But he went up to uh, Ohio. I'm sorry, uh, Iowa, Idaho, uh, no, Illinois, whatever. Um, uh, where in where went Fort Wayne is? Indiana. Indiana. That's where he went. And he's not from Fort Wayne. I just know it's the same state that has Fort Wayne in it. And uh, so he's gone up there, and I'm glad that I remembered that because I would have been worried about it all through the Bible class. The guy never misses anything. Ezekiel chapter 8, let me find this. And it says there, just a wonderful passage. You know, and he talks about what he's going to do. Uh, and they kind of alluded it to it here, so I'll skip a little bit of it. I'm going to see the wicked abominations and on and on. And uh, <clears throat> and he says, um, uh, hang on a sec. Okay, now in chapter 9. Chapter 8 is where he... Uh, shows them the abominations that are going on. And then in chapter 9, he says, this is what I'm going to do to them. And uh, he says, then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near each with a deadly weapon. The Hebrew is mapatz. It's a, a shattering weapon, something that you just crush you, a shattering weapon in his hand. Then suddenly six men came, as it said, from the direction of the upper gate, which is facing in the north, each with his mapat, his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with a linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. Then they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. And then the Lord came, and it goes there. I'm going to skip a little bit. It says, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark, that word, the tav, which a tav in ancient Hebrew was simply crossed stick. So it could be this way, it could be this way. It was just whoever spelled it. You know, people write low, but it's cross. Okay? And... Um, put the top on the forehead of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done in it. And then he said to the others, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill, and do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity, utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the top, the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. That's right. Okay, so... Um, it says, uh, then, um, so go through my sanctuary. And so they've been given their command, and from there it says, so they began with the elders who were before them. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain, go out. And they went out and killed the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone, and I fell on my face, and I cried out and said, ah, oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed and the city full of perversity. For they say, the Lord has taken the land and does not see me. And, or, yes, uh, and as for me, also my eye will neither spare nor have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. So he sent them out. The guy, Ezekiel, asked him a short question, and then he answers in two verses. So in three verses... That's the conversation that went on. And then it says in verse 11, then just, just then the man clothed with the linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. So in three verses, which took 30 seconds to read, he went out and he put a mark on all the people that didn't do the abomination. In other words, not many were saved. If you think about it, he only had time to walk out there and put a couple marks on there and say, everybody else is getting slaughtered. So very, very poignant passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come and worship in your presence, to uh, study your word, to be close to you, and to fellowship with other Christians in this wonderful place. And we thank you for Mike, who made the effort to come all the way down here just for a couple days. 
And Lord, we uh, pray for the people that we mentioned and any others out there that are having difficulties or trials. And uh, uh, we would just ask that you would bless them and lift them up and, and just meet them where they are in whatever situation they are and be a comfort and a, uh, a real presence to them in their times of trouble. Lord, we pray these things that they will know that it is you who is with them and that you will be glorified through their praises of you when they thank you for the surety that they have, that you are there with them and, and attending to their needs. And we pray this, that you will be glorified, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I think I forgot to ask the Lord that if anything isn't said right in this class, that he would take care of that, because I try to remember to do that, and uh, he knows that, but I would just, it would be my prayer that nothing in this class would be inappropriate, and if it is, that he would uh, lead you all to a correct answer of something that I have not correctly handled. I would never want to do that intentionally. Um, let's see here. We are in Galatians 3 still. It's taken a while to get through Galatians 3, but we'll get through it. And we're in verse 19, but I'm going to back up. No, this is the start of a new paragraph. I don't need to back up at all. Um, what purpose then does the law serve? And here it is. He gives Paul gives several reasons for the giving of the law in uh, Galatians and elsewhere in his epistles. But this is one specific purpose of the giving of the law. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Okay, so there we go with that. And we'll go ahead and give you our comments on that. And throughout his writings, Paul states several reasons why the law was given by God. One of them is included in this verse now. Here he first asks, what purpose does the law serve? He's a very good uh, orator and writer, and so he introduces a question and then he responds to it. And that's a good way when you are, you know, you're doing a sermon or when you're writing a friend about doctrine is to ask a question and then answer it. And a really good way to do, which you'll see, I'm sure in the Bible at times, uh, Thomas Aquinas does this in, in when he uh, would propose certain things in his um uh, what's it called? The uh, I can't think of the word right now. Anyway, he wrote this big volume of, of work, and I can't believe I can't remember because I refer to it all the time. But instead of just simply saying, this is what this says, he will say, um, oh, he will start with a question. What is it about the word of God that blah, blah, blah? And then you'll say, it appears that about the word of God, blah, 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 and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. He gives three or four points defending a contrary position first. And then what he does is he turns around and he says why those contrary positions are wrong. And by doing that, he has got you not only to know why they're wrong, but to think through things yourself. It's a way of getting you to think critically. And he's very good about that. I'll think of what it is in a minute, the, uh, the name of the book. But uh, 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 the Summa, it's called the Summa Theologica. And it, he covers every possible subject that you can imagine in that particular book. Uh, you know, angels and the nature of God and the word of God and, you know, uh, the redemption of man and how did the devil fall and all those kind of things. It's very involved. It's very uh, hard to read. There are times where you can read an entire paragraph and understand every word because you know what that word means. And when you get to the end of the paragraph, you don't know what you've read at all because it's so complicated. But he, uh, he will always introduce a subject and he will give a negative and then respond why that is. And then he will show you what is correct. So, and Paul's kind of doing that here. He's kind of doing that. Um, 
Paul, throughout the reason, Paul states several reasons why the law was given, okay? And here he asks, what purpose does the law serve? The reason for explaining this now is because he has just shown that the law has no bearing on the promise. The promise was to Abraham. The law came later. We talked about that last week. The law can have no bearing on the promise because the promise was made, and this is an interim step, and it does not nullify the promise, okay? So it cannot change or annul what has already been confirmed, which was the promise to Abraham. Therefore, unless there is a reason for the giving of the law, it seems like a long and pointless part of the redemptive story. Why would God do that? If the promise is given to Abraham and we're living under promise, then why would he bother even doing the law thing? Well, here's one of the reasons why he gives it. However, it is a logical part of fulfilling great purposes until it had served those purposes. After that, the law was set aside. And I try to remind people of this. The law is set aside for every person that comes to Christ. When you are in Christ, you will never be under God's law. And the Gentiles were never under God's uh, the law of Moses uh, in the first place. So people that are pursuing the law are doing the wrong thing if they aren't Jews because they were never under the law. Okay, But it's important to understand that the law is God's standard. Even though we're not under law, we, we're never told you don't have to eat pork and you will never be judged for something that you are not told to do. You cannot be judged for the law of Moses if you were never given the law of Moses. Just because we know what the law of Moses is, all of us here know it, you know, it doesn't mean that we're going to be judged by it because we were never Israel. Israel alone was given the law of Moses. Okay, so you'll never be judged for eating pork. It's not going to happen. But the law is God's standard. And Christ fulfilled that law. Therefore, the standard is what the world is judged by, the perfection of Christ. So it doesn't matter if you've eaten pork or if you haven't eaten pork. It doesn't matter if you've uh, killed somebody or if you haven't killed somebody. If you've broken one precept of the law, you've broken the entire law, and God's standard is broken. And therefore, everybody will be judged by the standard, which is Christ. It's just the fact that Christ embodies the law that... That is the standard for Israel that they must meet, which they cannot meet. And likewise, we must meet God's perfect standard, even though we can't meet it. And that's why Christ is such a great thing for Jew and for Gentile. Anyway, not to get too lengthy on that, but um, I'll read that last sentence again. It was a logical part of God's purposes, filling those, fulfilling those great purposes until it had set aside those purposes. When Christ came, he fulfilled the law. And it is set aside. Any Jew that comes to Israel is no longer under law. They are under grace. But until Israel as a collective whole, because they agreed to the law, and we're going to talk about that this Sunday in the sermon, they agreed to the law with their own mouth. They are obligated to that law. And until they as a nation, not individually, but as a nation, collectively come to Christ, they will collectively as a nation be under the law of Moses. There's no way around that. That's, we've seen that all the way through the law. We've seen it in every type and picture. Individuals can come out and be saved apart from the law, but national Israel must come to Christ in order for the law to be completely annulled and set aside. Okay, that's just important to understand. To explain one exact reason for the giving of it, meaning the law, he begins with, it was added because of transgressions. This statement can mean one of two things. It was added in order to keep people from committing transgressions, or two, it was given to cause transgression to increase, as stated in Romans 5, verse 20. As he says there, 
the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And what that means is that goes back to Paul's argument where people say, well, if grace abounds because I sinned, then maybe I should sin more so God's grace can abound even more. And Paul says that's perverse thinking. You don't think that way. But some people will logically make that connection because they haven't thought the whole thing through. So they say, well, God's happy to bestow grace on me. So the more bad I do, the happier God will be because he is bestowing greater grace on me. Don't think that way. That's perverse. I'm just giving that as an example. I'm not saying you should do that, okay? Paul was probably thinking of both possibilities, one and two here, concerning the law. It was to keep the people in check. That is true. But it was also intended to multiply transgressions. Thus, it would show how utterly sinful sin is. That's Romans 7, verse 13, okay? In order to understand that, you are given a law, you can't meet the law, and you say, oh my gosh, do I need something other than this law? And then you see the grace of Christ and you say, now I know how sinful I am before a holy God. So it is there to show us how utterly sinful sin is and thus to multiply transgressions. The promise would stand, Abraham's, the promise to Abraham, the promise would stand, but man was being shown the extremely gracious nature of the promise through the giving of the law. This aspect of redemptive history, however, had set a point of termination. It was only in effect until, as Paul says right here in this verse, until the seed should come to who the promise was made. How people can continually say it's okay to be under the law of Moses when Paul is so explicit that Christ, the law, was given for a set purpose, and once the seed came, then it would be set aside. As was noted in the commentary on 316, though, the seed there was speaking of the body of believers in Christ. We talked about that last week. Now, here, it is speaking of the one, meaning Christ, who would fulfill or would bring in the fulfillment of those promises for that body. Okay, so the seed in verse 16 is speaking of the body of believers, and then here it is speaking of Jesus, who is the one to grant that to the body of believers. Okay, Christ is the fulfillment of all of the messianic promises. It doesn't matter if it's the feast of the Lord. It doesn't matter what precept is in the law of Moses. Either he fulfilled every single one of them completely and entirely, or he is not the Messiah. Everything about the law of Moses is fulfilled in Christ, okay? Therefore, when he came, he fulfilled the law. Well, you could ask, that's a good question. Glad I asked it in my head. Christ is the embodiment of the law of Moses. Everybody got that. I just said that, and you're all supposed to sit here and shake your head and say, yes, I understand that. Okay. Was Jesus a priest under the Levitical law? No. Okay, well, the priests had to do certain things under the Levitical law, didn't they? Judah. What? He's from the tribe of Judah. That's right. Which, of which no person ever said a priest would officiate, as it says in the book of Hebrews. That's right. So, if he was not a Levite, and the Levites and the, the uh, priests from the Levites, they had certain jobs under the law of Moses. Well, how can he have fulfilled the law of Moses if they had responsibilities under the law? Can anybody answer that? Because it just popped into my head. Christ fulfilled the law, right? We all know that, and he's saying that. But we have the priests that had certain duties under the law. Anybody? He became a priest after the order of Mount Chesed. But that's under the new covenant, not under the old. Okay. Okay. 
Here's why. It just came into my mind, but I thought I'd flesh it out with you, okay? The reason why is because the priests weren't actually doing anything except doing the work of the law. In other words, what was the priest's duty concerning sin? The sacrifice. He's not the one. He's not the sacrifice. He prepared the sacrifice in whatever way was delineated for the particular sacrifice. He was just a person that conducted duties under the law. Everybody see that? Does anybody remember what some of the sacrifices pictured? There were different sacrifices. What did the uh, sacrifice, the sin offering, picture? Come on, what did it picture? Jesus, his sacrifice, right? What did the fat of that sacrifice offering picture? Something that Jesus fulfilled. In other words, every part of the sacrificial system was fulfilled by Christ. They just did the work. You have to have somebody to do the work, but he is the fulfillment of the typology of what they worked. When they went into the, the tabernacle and they sprinkled the blood, they were sprinkling in anticipation of the blood of Christ. That's why it says the sprinkling of blood in, what is it, 2 Peter? 1, 1 Peter, I think. Anyway, one Peter says, and the sprinkling of the blood. All they did was perform what the law expected them to perform, but they weren't the law itself. They were just the administrators of it. What they administrated pointed to Christ. And so when you say that Christ fulfilled all of the law, he did. He fulfilled all of it, every single type. And that's why we went through the book of Leviticus. We went through every single aspect of each sacrifice. The blood was splashed here. It was poured here. It was sprinkled there. It was always different. One animal, does anybody remember? One animal was burned with the blood. All the others had their blood taken out and it was either splashed, splashed or sprinkled or whatever. One animal was burned with the blood. Only one, and there was a reason for it. It was the red heifer. Red heifer was taken out and completely burned even with its blood, so with the blood. Okay, all of that pictured Christ. And we had to go through every single detail of that because it was to show that Christ is what those things are picturing. The priests only mediated on behalf between God and man, but they weren't actually a part of that system other than the ones that were working it out for him. He didn't need to be a priest under the old covenant because that was the job of the priests. He is the priest under the new covenant, which those things only look forward to. There you go. That's the answer to that. Just in case anybody ever asks you that and says, well, he wasn't a priest under the old covenant, that is explained in Hebrews, as you noted. He's from Judah, and he is the mediator of a better covenant. He is the priest of a better covenant. Everything about him, better than Aaron, better than Moses, better than the angels, better than. It's the, the consummate theme of the book of Hebrews is better than, or you might say greater than. But there you go. That's the answer to that. I wanted to make sure in case somebody emailed me today and asked that. Now they don't need to. And it's an important point to understand because he fulfilled all of it. Every single detail of the law he fulfilled. Okay. Uh, I said that there. Let's see here. Uh, he came. When he came, he fulfilled the law and died in fulfillment of that law. He was the one that died, just like the, the animal died. He was the one that shed his blood, just like the animal shed his blood. The priest just did the physical part of the action for them. Okay. He died in fulfillment of that law. The promise would then be made available to all who would call on him. Thus, during the interim time from the promise, meaning to Abraham, until the coming of Christ, the law was introduced for instruction and for learning. 
Paul will continue to clarify this as he progresses through the chapter and through the rest of the epistle. To complete his thought, what did you say so? It must have been my, I got an echo or something here. To complete his thought, he says that the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. There's abundant speculation concerning this statement. It also talks about angels in uh, uh, Acts, I think Acts 7, when Stephan says it may be, I may be wrong on that, so don't, don't put that in your brain. And it also says it in the book of Hebrews, okay? There's a lot of speculation on it. Nothing in the Old Testament confirms that angelic beings gave the law. Everything stands against that. In fact, it is clear that the law was given by the Lord directly to Moses, Okay, and when he came down on Sinai and spoke to the, the people of the Ten Commandments, it was directly to the people. It's very clear. You read the text, it never says anything about angels. Okay, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 33 2 seems to refer to this, though. Also, let's go there just because I didn't cite it, but let me uh, pull that up and read you. Uh, well, it's the Greek translation of Deuteronomy, so it may read differently here, and I don't have the Greek with me, but Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. The Lord came down, where is it, verse 2, uh, and he said, the Lord came down, came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth on Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of the saints from his right hand, came a fiery law for them. Something about the Greek translation reads differently, and I wish I brought the copy of that. But anyway, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 33.2 seems to refer to this, though. Also, some Jew Jewish traditions, such as that of Flavius Josephus, which is in Antiquities of the Jews, um, 15, chapter 15, verse uh, section 5-3. In case you want to go look that up, Jews 15, 5-3. Claim the presence of angels during the giving of the law. Even a few New Testament passages in Acts, oh, I, I was right, Acts and Hebrews seems to say this as well. However, and does anybody, before I read this, does anybody remember what I said about this particular issue? I've said it, uh, I said it during the giving of the law. I also said it in the commentaries, which I know Burke has read every one of them because he sends me little notes from time to time and talks about it. But um, uh, I said it during that. I said it during the Hebrews commentary. What is another answer when it says it was mediated through angels? Anybody? I don't remember. Okay. That's okay. That's okay because there's a lot of information in the Bible and I forget a lot more than I remember every day. Um, I'll give you a hint. You're reading through right now. I know that you're reading the morning commentaries on the book of Revelation. And we are going through the seven letters to the seven churches right now. And what is it? Who is it that Jesus speaks to first at the beginning of each uh, letter? The leader, of the, church. the leader of the church, but he calls him the angel. the angel. So the word angel in both Hebrew and Greek. In Hebrew, it's malak. In uh, Greek, it's agalos. And they both mean messenger. That's all the word angel means is messenger. It can be a human. It can be a divine being. Okay. 10 points for you. Okay. Um, so it says um, uh, there's a reasonable explanation for this uh, without adding to what scripture says. In three New Testament passages, which refer to this, it speaks of the law being given through angels, plural. There are two things to consider on this. First, in Acts 7.38, Stephan says that the angel spoke to them on Mount Sinai, and the word is singular. Thus, it refers to the Lord alone, the second member of the Godhead, meaning the angel, the messenger, like Jesus is called the messenger of the covenant. Behold, I will send, okay? So, he's the angel of the covenant. He's the messenger, Jesus Christ. Secondly, the word for angel, which is agalos, does not necessarily mean a heavenly being. 
It simply means a messenger or a delegate. In Acts 7.53, here in Galatians and later in Hebrews, where this is noted, the word is plural and therefore is speaking of both Moses and Aaron because the Lord spoke to both Moses and Aaron at times. Aaron received part of the law, and I was very precise when I went through that part. When Aaron was talked to, I always highlighted this. It's very unusual, but Aaron is being given instruction. And remember at the beginning of everything in the book of um, Leviticus, it kept saying again and again and again. It said, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying. And at times it would say, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying. Okay, and then finally, a couple times, I think it was two, I might be wrong on that, don't make it squiggle, but it said, and the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, and I always highlighted that because I wanted people to remember that. That's an important thing that's going on. He spoke to angels, leaders of the congregation, messengers of his word, because remember, they said, and we're going to see this again this Sunday, they said, after hearing the Ten Commandments, what? What you said, we'll do. Well, before that, though, they, they heard the Ten Commandments and they oh, said, don't, let him, talk don't let him speak to us anymore. He speaks to you. They became messengers, angels. Okay? So when people say that the Lord received the, or the law was received through angels, and they get into this thing about, you know, goofy Nephilim stuff, don't listen to that. That is not what that's referring to. And when you go through Exodus, and when you go through Leviticus, it is very clear that there is never an angel intermediary between the Lord and Moses, which means that Moses and Aaron are the intermediary, exactly as the people requested, and as you'll see on Sunday's sermon. It's important. That's why I say when we, uh, I said it um, uh, last, when what did I say? Oh, I said it last week at the end of the David and Goliath series, is that you cannot fully appreciate the New Testament without studying the Old, and in particular, the books of Deutero uh, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's the basis of everything. That's why the Lord put that there first, and that's why he expects us to study those things, is because without knowing that, you'll get into a funny theology, thinking that angels swooped down and started telling the people something which did not happen and is not recorded there. And all of a sudden, you think you've got a contradiction in the Bible when there is not. The word angel is important. You got that one right. And then it expands and goes back to there. You had something. So when angel is capitalized, it's, it's referring well, to Jesus. Well, no, no. It, it may. It may. I, and the reason why I say no isn't because that's incorrect. She asked, in case you couldn't hear, when the word angel is capitalized, it refers to Jesus. And I would not make that completely, but it is correct normally. But in the Hebrew and in the Greek, there is no capitalization. So that is translator's preference. And it may be that it's speaking of Jesus, like, you know, the angel of the Lord came and did this and that. We know that it's speaking of Jesus. But there are times, excuse me, where somebody might make a, an incorrect assumption and make a small A when it should be a capital or a capital A and then a small. That's why I said no first. I didn't want to make the full leap. The, the capitalization of God, of all of those things, Yahweh and all of the different names that are used are solely translator's preference because in the Hebrew, it is all there's no such thing as capitalization. And in the Greek, you either have what's called minuscule letters or majuscule. They either write all small or all big, but there's no, like we use, capitalization to start a sentence or capitalization for a, a pronoun or, you know, whatever. So that answers your question. The answer is yes, but be careful. And that's why I started with no. Okay. Um, 
Anyway, let's see here. Where were we? Um, okay, so we did that. And um, yes, Moses and Aaron were considered messengers of God for the giving of the law to Israel. They were the intermediaries. All right. Even if Aaron wasn't with Moses at all times, because as I said, Aaron received the word directly with Moses or alone a few times. All right. And finally, Moses is the mediator of the same law as is noted in Exodus 24, 3 through 8. Hence, the term mediator is in the singular, okay? I know it's complicated. I know that you look at this and you say, why should I care about this? But you will care about it when somebody comes from, you know, some cult and says, well, you know, you've got an error in your translation, exactly what we're talking about right now. You don't know when that's going to happen. There are people out there that have an agenda. And they'll say something and say, okay, now go back and show me where it's that. See, there's a contradiction in your word. And these things are actually a lot more important than most people think. And you, you don't have to remember these things, but you will remember them when you were put on the spot. In other words, I won't remember this when I go home tonight. That's why I typed it up, is I want to present to you something that I thought through carefully to give to you. I'm not going to remember the details of it, but I will remember if somebody says to me, what about that? I'll say, I know that that's incorrect, and I will get you an answer. And that's what you do. But otherwise, you're left with nothing. And you're left with, oh, yeah, I guess we have a contradiction in the Bible. There never is. Never a contradiction in Scripture. Life application. The law had a purpose, and it is not to save us from sin. The law had a purpose. I'm not talking about Christ. The law had a purpose, and it is not to save us from sin. Instead, it was to show the great grace of God in Jesus Christ by highlighting our sin. Let us thank God that the curse of the law is removed through the shed blood of Christ. Okay, did anybody here... You know, I, I didn't really, uh, after church last week, there was a lot going on, and then I left. And it's a great time with that ending of this particular verse. Did anybody here have a question about the ending of the 1 Samuel series? Did you get the typology? Did you understand? Christ used the law to destroy the devil. And the devil was using the law to destroy man. He was misusing the law. David took, it was Goliath's sword is law. Okay, and he was misusing that law, twisting it to deceive man. Okay, that is his tool. Christ came and he took that same tool, says he had no sword in his hand. It was very specific. They didn't need to include that sentence in there unless it was for a reason. He had no sword in his hand. He had nothing in his hand, but he took his sword. The sword that he is using against mankind, the law of Moses, he took it and he cut off his head with it, his sword with his hand. That's the typology. And it is marvelous. I know that that was a complicated sermon. And if somebody has a general round idea of the Bible, they should be able to get it if they sat down and read it three or four times. But some people may not get the whole picture of the Bible. They haven't read this book or that book. Every single word of that particular passage to me was incredible. I And, you know, every time I'd find something, I'd send it to Sergio and I'd say, look at this. I wasn't going to tell anybody else. I didn't want anybody else to know what was coming. But every time he would just stop and wow, wow, wow. And then we talked more and it was great. It was just, it was marvelous. They were driving one time down to do one of their videos in one of the Philistine cities. And that's when I figured out that the words for arrow and flame actually came together. And they say flaming arrow, just as the devil sends his flaming arrows against us. And I was like, oh, I can't believe it. So I sent it down to them. And they were like, oh, boy. So if you didn't get that sermon, I'm sorry. You can email me about any point that you didn't get. But the big picture is that the law is the devil's tool to destroy man. 
because man is not smart. He twists the law, we believe his lies, and that's why it was so important that Christ came, and when he was challenged by the devil, he cited the law back in context, not out of context. He was using the law properly to destroy the work of the devil. Everything about that, I, I just love that sermon. But I'll tell you what happened. This is funny. I told Mike this. Poor Hedico. Last week I got done. I, I had to get the video done. And I got everything done. And it was 545, I think, which is a little earlier than normal because I didn't have a couple other things I needed to do. And I could not get warm. I was literally frozen, wasn't I, Hedico? I was sitting there with a blanket, and I'm like, I, I couldn't get warm, and I was completely drained. And I told her, I'm going to eat, and I'm just going to lay down on the couch. And I fell asleep, and I slept until the next morning. 3.45, my eyes popped open without the alarm clock, but exactly when it's supposed to. But I was completely done after that series. It took everything out of me. And I, I, I don't know what was wrong with me, but it all went out that night. But I, I lay down on the couch probably at 6 o'clock. And I fell asleep, and I don't remember one thing until the next morning. And I told Mike today, I'm going to try to do that every Sunday. Man, that extra hour of sleep was sweet. That was sweet. So uh, it'll probably not happen, but we'll give it a shot. Anyway, let's go on to 320 here. Sorry. Yes. 319 three, three again. 319 again. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Okay, mine doesn't have seed capitalized. Usually they do. That's correct. And you said it was, it was Christ. Yes. But how did that promise come to him? Okay, wait a minute. It was added because of transgressions till the seed, till Christ comes. But it says the promise to the seed. What's that? Well, that's your translation. Here's what it says. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, meaning the promise of Abraham. The promise of Abraham is Christ. In you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. There you go. Yeah. That's why we read a couple translations at times. If anybody has, do you have it? No, you don't have one here. My seed is capitalized. Okay. What version are you reading? Okay, so you're the same as me. That's all right. Well, I always have Jim read the NIV. And so by doing that, we see errors in translation. You know, we could do that with 12 translations, and then we could start studying it. We'd see the error in 12 different translations sometimes because, you know, some verses are very complicated. Nobody agrees on them. But yours is correct. It is seed, but they have it seed capital in verse 316 too. If you look back at 316, it says capital seed. And I argue there that that is not speaking of Christ, even though they've capitalized it. So that's their error because it's speaking of the seed, which is the body of Christ. There's two things going on in these verses. That's why it's important to look at these things and to remember translations are only so good as their scholars. And most translating committees are not scholarly. All they do is translate. Uh, if, for example, uh, Will Groban, who we just prayed for, for his job over there, was trained at Dallas Theological Seminary. He is fully proficient in Hebrew and in Greek. He will know Hebrew and Greek. He knows Hebrew better than Sergio will ever, ever know. Okay? And he knows biblical Hebrew. Biblical Hebrew is different than modern Hebrew. And so when Sergio reads biblical Hebrew, there are things he does not understand. Okay? And so Will Groban knows that. But Will Groban can't speak two words of Hebrew, which is kind of funny because you can know a language and not speak it. Or like the Koreans, when they would come and I would train them, they didn't speak any English, but they knew English better than I do because they're trained in the mechanics of that language. Okay, 
But that translation, Will Groban, unless he is trained in theology, all he's going to do with his Hebrew is translate the Hebrew. And he's going to translate it as best as he knows. And if he's not properly trained in theology, he's going to have these types of errors all through there. That's why when you have a translation, you need to consider not just who the translators are, because that doesn't really make that much difference. What you need to know is who was the scholarly committee behind the translations. Because if they don't have one, you're getting whatever theology those people have, and that's all you're getting. They may have no theology, okay? But if you have great theologians that they study first, like Charles Ellicott and Albert Barnes, and we're going to look at these people, and we're going to have a scholarly committee with the translation, you're going to have a good translation. You're going to have a sound one, okay? And that's just the way it is. I mean, people can say the King James Version is the only inspired version and is perfect in all its ways. It's not. Most people have errors. It is the most error version I know. I mean, it's just because they were translators. They were not scholars, okay? They did what they could, and they used a lot of their theology from the Geneva Bible, which already was translated, and so there's going to be errors in there. This is just the way it is, and it's not to slam any translation. It's just to show you that you need to be careful, and it's better when you have a Bible study to have multiple translations open, and then Burke can say, like he just did, what about this? Because his translation reads differently, and because of that, there's a misunderstanding of what's going on. And so when you see that the promise is actually speaking of Christ and the promises from Abraham, that's why the law has no bearing on it. Okay, let's go on with 320 now. A anything else on that, Burke? Thank you. Okay, here we go. Uh, Galatians 320. I'm going to read 19 again, just so we have that. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, meaning Christ, to whom Abraham the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels, meaning Moses and Aaron, by the hand of a mediator, singular, Moses. They're angels, they're the receivers, they're the messengers, but there is one mediator of that law, okay? Until the law is received, and then after that, who became the mediator of the law? After, no, 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 the law of Moses, after Aaron was the mediator, receiving the law and telling it to the people, after him, who became the mediator of the law? The That's right, Aaron the priest, or any priest after him. They became the mediators, but for the mediation of the law itself, it was Moses, okay? So he fulfilled a role unlike anybody else in any part of the Old Testament. No priest fulfilled a, law, a role like Moses did, okay? And that is why it is so important. We're going to talk about this in Sunday sermon, and we're going to bring it up in sermon after sermon, again and again through Deuteronomy, is that where is it? I'm going to say a prophet like Moses. Where is that recorded? This is that's one of the most important concepts in the That's exactly right. Deuteronomy 18. Okay? That is how important that is. That the whole law hinges on that premise ending and becoming a new covenant. Is there is a prophet like Moses that is promised in Deuteronomy 18. What does that mean? It means somebody that will receive a law that will mediate a law, and that will confirm that law, just like Moses did. Well, if that is the case, then it can't be speaking of the law of Moses, can it? Everybody got that? He is a prophet like Moses, but he's not Moses. He's coming in with his own law. And then that's later confirmed in Jeremiah 30, 31, 31. That's correct. Okay. He's 
behold, I promise a new covenant. But I have to tell you what, that is so important. I'm going to talk about it this Sunday and pay attention when I bring in the prophet like Moses, because we're going to come at it from every angle all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. It is saying that there is an end. What was it that they asked John the Baptist when they first went up to him? Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? They knew that somebody was coming that would bring something new in. They knew it. They asked that question specifically because they knew that something was coming. They didn't know what it meant, but there will be a prophet like Moses. And he said, it ain't me. Okay. But remember that precept because I'm going to bring that up probably in the next four sermons again and again, at least the next four. And then I'll bring them up in more after that, because it's such an important point from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18 means that the law of Moses is looking forward to its own ending right there. It's not a law that's to continue, it's to end. Okay, 320. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Okay, let's do that. 320. We arrive at one of the most widely interpreted verses in the entire Bible. At the time of Charles Ellicott, the 19th century Bible scholar, there were at least 430 interpretations of what is thought to have been on Paul's mind with this verse. Therefore, it is a doubt it is without a doubt a verse which has a great deal of meaning contained within itself. Charles Ellicott said there are 430 different interpretations of this one verse, okay? However, context needs to be ascertained for any verse. This one comes during a discussion about the covenant with Abraham, which is followed by the giving of the law of Moses. Vincent's word studies notes that the Greek term translated here as now is explanatory, not antithetic. Therefore, what has been previously said is now further explained. Abraham was given a promise. Abraham believed that promise, and Abraham was declared righteous. Thank you. After this, the Lord made a covenant with him, and he alone, the Lord alone, passed through the divided animals. The covenant was made, and it was settled. That was it. There was nothing else that could be done to annul it, to amend it, or anything. The Lord spoke. He went through the cut pieces of the animal. I will be like these dead animals if I do not fulfill this covenant in its entirety, is what the Lord was saying. Okay? However, because the covenant was made, and despite it only being made by one, meaning God, to change it would still require both parties' approval. We talked about that last week. Okay, that was verse 15. Even though God made it, it cannot be annulled by anybody. It cannot be changed or amended unless both parties agree. Okay? As Abraham was not alive 430 years later, that's verse 17. We just looked at that last week. The institution of the law of Moses could not have had any bearing on the promise. Does everybody see that? The promise was made by God. Abraham had died and so he couldn't, even if the law came in, Abraham would have had to have been there to agree to it if the law could change the promise to Abraham. But he was dead, so that promise cannot be changed in any way because Abraham is not there to change it. So the law has no bearing on the promise. Another note concerning the Greek is that there is an article attached to mediator, and thus it is the mediator. Let me read it again so you can see the difference. All right, it says here in verse 20, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. It says now the mediator does not, okay? 
It is therefore marked as a class noun, thus giving it the sense a mediator as such. That's the pulpit commentary. Understanding this, we can then look at what has brought about the annulling of the law of Moses, which is the new covenant. The new covenant annulled the law of Moses. That's Hebrews 7, 18, 8, 13, and 9, 10, uh, verse 9. 10, verse 9, yes. Um, so, uh, understanding this, we can look at what has brought about the annulling of the law of Moses, which is a new covenant. This is made explicit by the words in Hebrews, which states, with all certainty, here it is. I just cited the verses. Here's what they say. One, it is annulled. Two, it is set aside, meaning it's over here. It's no longer in place. And three, it is obsolete. Okay, it's explicit in the book of Hebrews. The new covenant came through Christ, pictured by David whacking off the devil's head, okay? Came through Christ. He is called in both Hebrews 9.15 and Hebrews 12.24 the mediator of the new covenant. If he is the mediator and the covenant is based on grace in accord with the promise made to Abraham, not on works of the law, but based on grace in accord with the promise made to Abraham, not on works of the law, okay? Then Christ is he is but what does that mean he must be if he is common he has established a new covenant he must be begins with a g and ends with a d and has an o in the middle anybody he must be god does everybody see that now it is 100 assured that he must be god okay it says here i'll read it again if he is the mediator and the covenant is based on grace in accord with the promise to Abraham and only God went through those pieces and yet he initiated a new covenant, he must be God. Okay, the fullness of the Godhead bodily subsists in him from Colossians chapter 1. It is certain that Paul is referring to Christ in this verse because he was mentioned in verse 319. He will be referred to throughout the rest of the chapter, and he will again be referred to in verse 4-4, all in the context of this issue that we're looking at right now. As we are counted in the seed of Abraham, verse 16, because of Christ, we become one with Christ. We are in Christ. The New Testament uses that term, what, 852,427 times, I think. That might be an exaggeration, but it's a lot, okay? We are in Christ, and we have put on Christ, meaning that we are clothed in him. That's verse 327, coming soon. This is why we are again called Abraham's seed in verse 329. Logically, this means that as God is one, and because we are in Christ, we are fully reconciled to God through his work. There is nothing that needs to be done. This is made explicit in Colossians 1, 20, 21, and I'll explain something in just a second. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We are fully reconciled to God. Somebody was talking to me last night about a certain precept that a preacher mentioned in a church and he said no change no christ in other words if you haven't changed you can't be in christ as works-based salvation and that is not the gospel of jesus christ it says if you believe in the gospel you are saved and you are sealed with the holy spirit your change comes after not before your conversion and if you don't change you are the one that will suffer 
but it is not a works-based salvation. It is a grace-based salvation. Okay? If you want proof of that, go read 2 Peter 1.9. Okay? There are people that have forgotten that they were saved. They were saved, they were told the gospel, and they forgot. Maybe they didn't have a church to go to. Maybe they heard it out in the, the forest of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, Appalachia somewhere, or maybe out in the, the uh, jungle of Papua New Guinea. Somebody told them about Christ, and they believed. And after that, they forgot. God did not. That is not a precept that you will ever hear me preach, ever. I will never change my doctrine on the grace of Jesus Christ. If you don't change, that's your fault. That is your fault. But God will not neglect what he has promised and what he has sealed. God does not make mistakes. We do. Okay? So, in anticipation of that marvelous position, meaning Christ in his exaltation in which we stand by faith, Jesus made his intercessory prayer for his people just prior to the act that would make it possible. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Everything is one with God, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. God will not reject you ever. Because if he could reject you, he could reject his own son, Christ. He will never do it because you are in Christ. The moment you believe, you, the moment that you believe, everything that happens after that comes down in an entirely different category. Rewards and losses. And some people will die five seconds after believing. Some people will live 50 years, crummy lives after believing. It doesn't matter. You are saved. Everything after that point, though, does matter for your rewards and losses. Everything you do, every person that you talk to, every deal that you make with people, it matters, okay? You are representing Christ now, but your position in Christ will not change ever. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Let's see here. Life application. Okay. Tell them where that was. Oh, John 17, 20 through 23. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful words. It just is astonishing what God has done for us. And I know that that's scary. People say, oh, that's not true. That's heresy. You know, if you don't believe that there's a change in you, then you can't be saved. Those people don't know what they are talking about. They have no idea what the word grace means. Grace is getting anybody what you do not deserve. You're not saved until you're saved. If you have to do something before that or even after it, then it isn't grace. It's works-based salvation. That's all it is. I went through that in the Doctrine series. If you didn't listen to those, listen to them. You'll understand at least where the position is. You may not agree with it, but you can be as wrong as you want. I will never change on the grace of Jesus Christ. That does not mean license. That's another thing that people then say. Well, if I have grace, then now I can go do all the perversion I want. I'm writing about that in the book of Revelation right now, which is in the letters to the seven churches. That does not mean that. That's a disgrace to Christ. But guess what Christ says? He says, if you've overcome, you've overcome, and you're going to get all of these things. But in the meantime, woe to you for doing these things during your life, right? And Paul does the same, and Peter does the same, but they never question somebody's salvation. Sergio called me about that, uh, 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 messaged me about that issue this morning. Some thing that was going on, and he says it's just so obvious and so clear. 
but people don't want grace. We want to be in bondage. And I'll, you want proof of that? People want to be in bondage because there are cults all over the world and people are in those cults. They want to be in bondage. They want to believe that they have to do something to merit God's favor. We, it's our nature. We have to actually put aside our human nature to accept grace because we want to say, I've done this good thing and I deserve something for it. We've done nothing. We've done nothing for what we have gotten from God. He did every single thing and all we did was believe. Grace cannot be added to without it not being grace. Remember that, okay? I understand the logical necessity of doing good things after salvation. I understand that. But that doesn't negate God's grace. I will preach doing good things till the day I die. I'll preach that you should be doing these good things and you shouldn't be doing those bad things. But I am not going to diminish what Jesus Christ has done you know, to make $5 off of somebody that says, yeah, come on in here and we'll, we'll tell you that you're not saved if you did something wrong. I'm not going to do that. You were saved when you were saved. Okay, life application. There is a ton, a ton of theology tied up in this verse, and we only took a couple minutes on it, unfortunately. To fully explore it requires fully exploring the entire Bible. Suffice it to say that if you have accepted Jesus, you are fully, not partially, not maybe, not whatever, you are fully reconciled to God, and you are clothed in Christ. We could no more lose our standing with God than Christ could. I just said that, and here I said it years ago when I typed this. As God is one, and yet Jesus is called our mediator, then Jesus must be God. The principal tenets of the faith are all wrapped up in understanding the marvel of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. However, being in Christ requires that we live by faith in him and not by works of the law. This is the entire point of Paul's letter to the Galatians. The law is opposed to faith. To insert the law into one's attempt to be justified before God thus excludes one from being in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean somebody that's already come to Christ. That's talking about the next guy, okay? The person that comes to Christ is going to suffer for going back into the Hebrew Roots movement or whatever. You're going to get no rewards for trying to please God through merits of the law. Not, it's not going to happen, but you're not going to lose your salvation. But the next people, and I'll tell you what, I was talking to somebody just yesterday about that. A guy is stuck in the Hebrew Roots movement. He was a saved Christian, no doubt that he was saved when he was young, and he had a very bitter experience in his life, and he was taken away from a right standing with his congregation. He was so bitter at him. And he found the Hebrew Roots movement, and he got into it, and he says, this is, this is what I need right now. I need this bondage on me, right? Which is so sad. Well, guess what? He's got children, and if his children never hear about the grace of Christ, they're never going to be saved. And he's going to be up there without his family because he's put himself into this untenable position with God. And he's going to get no rewards for his life apart from Christ working the law, like Paul is speaking to these people. Pay attention to Galatians, and it will take care of theology and a thousand different cults that are out there. It's not profitable to preach grace. Because when people are free from the bondage that they're under, they don't need to do anything, right? It's profitable to have people in bondage. That's where the profit is. I'm talking about all kinds of profit. I'm not just talking about monetarily. I'm talking about your power. I'm talking about the size of your church. You keep people in bondage and those things will increase. That's all there is to it. And, but it's not profitable for each individual because they're the ones that are in bondage and that guy is the heretic that's teaching them. 
Cults are serious business, and Paul is trying his best to get us through it, just as John will, especially in his three epistles. One, two, and three, John. He goes all through it, okay? 321. Um, let me get with this out here. 321 says, um, oh, i got to get back to Galatians. All right, 321, sorry about that. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But it can't be. Okay, here we go. 321. Paul now enters into an obvious question for those who have misunderstood the purpose of the law. And that's what people are doing to this day when they reinsert the law. They've misunderstood the purpose of it. Well, if God gave us the law, and the law was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The question may be, is the law then against the promises of God? That's what Paul just wrote. Is the law then against the promises of God? Paul has already shown that the law cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. That was verse 17. Therefore, Paul's use of the word against is not insinuating some type of negative action of the law against the promises of God. Instead, the word is being used in a contrary sense, as if the purpose of the law was contrary to the promises. His answer is, certainly not. The law was given, but unlike the promises, it was not intended as a means of giving life meaning declaring a person righteous or justified before God. That's Leviticus 18.5. The man who does these things will live by them. If he does, he will be declared righteous. Nobody's done the things of the law. Okay? Uh, what? Except Christ. That's right. I'll read that again. The law was given, but unlike the promises, meaning to Abraham, it was not intended as a means of giving life, meaning declaring a per person righteous or justified before God. The reason this is true is then clearly given in the words, for if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. That's Paul's words. Look at that. Wow. Okay, we're going to finish this verse and we're going to be done for today because we have some pizza. Hey, if a sinful man could be justified by the law, supposing this were possible, a sinful man could be justified by the law, then the law would, in fact, be contrary to the promise. There would be then two different means of obtaining righteousness. You could be righteous by the promise, or you could be righteous by the law. There would be two ways of being declared righteous. It would show fickleness in the plan of God, because God has already said that you're declared righteous, Abraham, by faith, and you will be the father of all of these people in the same manner. So God would be fickle. Okay, I'm going to give you another way to be righteous before me. And what would that lead to? Inevitably, it would lead to something that is on the back bumper of many, many cars that you pass along the road. What? Coexist. All paths lead to God. If God can give one avenue and God can give a second avenue, then he can give 10,000 avenues. And that is, you, you get five points for that as well. Very good. I love when people think issues through. Look at my hair standing up over that, because that is what that means. If God is fickle in one way, he's going to be fickle in all ways. And that's not the God of creation. He's not fickle in any way. But the law could not bring a sinful man to a state of righteousness. Therefore, the spirit and purpose of the law were not contrary to the promises. 
inasmuch as the law did not offer to interfere with the work which the promises were to do, but was designed to be auxiliary to their function by preparing the way for its discharge. That's the pulpit commentary saying that. It was a preparatory step for understanding the promises in a more potent way, I guess you would say it. What again needs to be remembered is that Christ has come. The Galatians, who never had the law, had called on Christ and had been declared righteous. The proof of this was the sealing of the Spirit. The same is true with the Jews who did have the law. None of them were granted the Spirit until they repented of trying to be justified by the law instead of believing in what Christ had done in fulfillment of the law, Acts chapter 2. None of them had gotten the Spirit unless they repented of what they had done. The repenting does not transfer to all people in the church age. That is directed to the Jews who had crucified Christ and only them. Acts is not to be taken as a prescriptive book. It is to be descriptive. This is what occurred and here is why it occurred. Okay, so this shows that the righteousness was not of the law and thus the law was not contrary to the promises of God. Instead, it was introduced as a means of leading sinful man to Christ who had no sin and thus was qualified and capable of fulfilling the law. If one is to trust in the law, it is only to be insofar as Christ has fulfilled it in him, as you said earlier. He is the embodiment of the law as all of the typology of the tabernacle, especially the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat above it, typifies Christ. Everything about that, every single detail pointed to Jesus. Okay, he is the embodiment of it. Therefore, he is the fulfillment of the promises. Life application, we're going to finish with this. We're going to have pizza, and everybody else is going to, here, let me waft some pizza to you. There, I hope you can smell that. This is a different pizza than we get usually. We got it from a designer pizza place down there, really nice people. And I tried my best. I tried my best to pay for this. And the person that's visiting, which really upset me, and he's not allowed to come back to Sarasota anymore, but we want to thank our brother Mike for having paid for the pizza and all the pizza you guys smell out there. It's very good. I know it is. So here we go. Life application. If you encounter those who claim you must observe the law in order to be saved, you should be familiar with the arguments they will submit for their incorrect stand. Further, you should be able to come to Galatians and defend why their stand is both incorrect and crazy. Paul's words are precise and lead to only one conclusion, the law, meaning attempting to be declared righteous by deeds of the law, cannot save sinful man. Only faith in Christ can do so. That is it. That is your one ticket. God is not fickle. There's not many roads going up the mountain. It is Christ or it is nothing. And those are the only two options for humanity. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful blessings of this life. We thank you for the surety of your word. And we thank you that Christ is the fulfillment of every good thing that the word speaks of. We're just in love with him because he first loved us. And we thank you for what you did through him for us so that we can be reconciled to you. And Lord, we certainly pray for the people we mentioned at the beginning of the service, and we pray for anybody out there that's having an affliction or having a difficulty understanding the word, that you would open their minds to understand at least the simplicity of the meaning of grace. You did the work, we receive it, and that's that. And Lord, we thank you for Mike, and we pray for a safe trip back for him tomorrow, and we also right now pray for the pizza. 
We pray that uh, you bless it, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn this off, and we're going to go to break.